Welcome to the Kaleo Life Podcast. You can find more resources for gospel living and information about us by going to our website, kaleo.community. Enjoy today's sermon. This afternoon, uh, it's just a blessing to be able to open God's Word with all of you. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to the, the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel. We're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 16 this afternoon. See, if you want to play a little game as I'm, as I'm preaching tonight, see if you can catch how many times I say this morning. <laughs> but 1 Samuel chapter 16, go ahead and turn there and we're going to be looking at verses 1 to, or 1 Samuel 16, we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 13. So if you're there, you can follow along as I read. I'm reading from the English Standard Version, 1 Samuel chapter 16, starting in verse 1. And the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king from among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. And the elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourself and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all of your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us this time, this wonderful, special time in the midst of our week where we as brothers and sisters can be together in this place and be encouraged by worship, uh, by fellowship, and by opening your word and learning from you. And so I just pray that you would meet with us in a special way during this time, 
by your spirit, encourage us, strengthen us, challenge us, convict us. Uh, Help us really to see the significance of this text for our lives. Help us to know you more and to trust you more. Help us to love you more deeply. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I get started this afternoon, um, I'm going to begin with a confession, all right? I have a confession I'd like to share. And and as a guest speaker here, maybe I shouldn't make this confession. Uh, Maybe I should stick to something safer, easier, more comfortable to share with all of you, but I'm going to do it anyways, okay? So here it goes. Here's the confession. Sometimes, sometimes God is hard to trust. Sometimes God is hard to trust. Now, maybe as you came to church this evening, that is not what you were expecting to hear, especially from this guest that you've allowed into your pulpit. But it's true. Sometimes God is hard to trust. And I think if we're here tonight and we're being honest, I think we all know this experientially. Uh, There are moments, though, when it's really easy to trust Him, right? So there's times when God is really easy to trust. God is easy to trust when everything in our life feels like it's just coming up roses. Everything is just going well. Like like when your new marriage is in that honeymoon phase or or your job, your boss at your job, he is just gushing about how well you're doing. There's talk of a raise. Or or when your kids are actually getting along with each other. I mean, a miracle that rarely happens, but when they're actually getting along with each other and you even caught them listening to what you say, in those moments, it's really easy to trust God, right? It's really easy in those moments. But what about when things aren't that way? What about when your relationships, your your friendships, uh, your marriage, your connection with your your kids or with your parents, what about when they feel marked more by frustration and fatigue than joy or fullness? Or, Or what about those times when you find yourself fearful about what's going on in your relationships? Maybe it's a fear of loneliness. That person's going to abandon me. Maybe it's a fear of betrayal. They're going to throw me under the bus. Or, or, or what about when you're walking through some real problems? Maybe they're, they're at work or they're at school. And you're in that spot where you feel like you fear that things are never going to get any better. You fear they might actually get worse. And, and, and you pray to God. You ask God for a breakthrough, for God to turn things with your job or turn things with your kids or turn things with your relationships. But his only answer either seems like silence or to just ratchet up the difficulty level. And often in those moments, at least it's it's true for me, uh, our prayer in those moments is a lot less praise Jesus for these things that are going on and a lot more of, Lord, what in the world are you doing? Lord, what are you doing? Again, I think if we're being honest here this afternoon, um, we've all had those moments, right? asking, Lord, what in the world are you doing? Those moments of of wrestling, of struggling, of, of, of frustration, because in that moment, God and his ways don't seem to make a lot of sense. Sometimes God is hard to trust. Sometimes God is hard to trust. Sometimes the prayer on our lips is a lot less praise Jesus and a lot more, Lord, what in the world are you doing? 
And, and I bring all of that up because that question, Lord, what in the world are you doing? It really stands as the banner over this text we're going to be working through this afternoon. It's not explicitly stated in the text, but implicitly it is all over the place in this text. And, and this text that we're going to be working through is actually a really pivotal scene here in 1 Samuel. And, and it's such a pivotal scene because this is the scene in which David, Israel's greatest king, is first anointed as king. And there is a lot going on in this scene. There, there are several themes, there are several issues that are coming together in our text here. There are several th threads that are woven throughout this book that are all coming together here in this one scene. So in this scene, what we're going to what we're going to understand is, is we're witnessing something here more than just, okay, who's going to stand as the next king over Israel? What we're witnessing here with all these threads coming together is actually a lesson in the ways and the working of the Lord and why at times it does feel so hard to trust him. But here's the thing. As we walk through this scene, uh, we're going to learn the, these, this lesson not through the words and actions of David. David is a part of this scene. This is an important, pivotal scene in the life of David. But also, in a way, David is a minor player in this scene. We don't even read his name. I don't know if you notice this. We don't even read his name until the last verse in this section. Instead, we experience all of this scene through the eyes of another. We experience it through the eyes and actions of Samuel. Samuel, the great priest, the great prophet, the great leader over Israel, who is the namesake of this book. And in this scene, Samuel stands in this role of kingmaker. He is the one who's going to be anointing the next king over Israel. But as we'll see, that role of kingmaker comes with some challenges. Comes with some challenges. Now, now just for some context here, when we meet Samuel in this scene, he has lived his entire life in service to God and his people. If you remember the story about Samuel in the, in the beginning of 1 Samuel, his mother Hannah dedicated him to service in the temple. You remember the story about Hannah? Here she comes to the temple and she is this barren woman who is struggling. She's been suffering. She's struggling with her barrenness and she cries out to the Lord. The Lord hears her prayer and he answers her prayer and he blesses her with his child. And Samuel is that child and she dedicates him to the Lord. And Samuel grows up. He becomes a priest, but not just a priest. He becomes this great leader in Israel, this judge over Israel. But now in our text, Samuel is near the end of his life. He's served all these years. But here near the end of his life, he's struggling. We see some actually some frustration with him. Uh, he's, he's frustrated by some of the ways that things have worked out in his life and in the life of God's people. So my first point this, this evening is this. Sometimes God is hard to trust because life is frustrating. Sometimes God is hard to trust because life is frustrating. That's what we witness here in verse one. We find Samuel as a frustrated man of God. Now, if you're reading through the book of 1 Samuel, thus far, Samuel has been this exemplary man of God. Um, if, you are, if you are auditioning heroes of the faith, you could do a lot worse than Samuel. I mean, Samuel, as you read through this book, he's just this godly man. He's this godly priest, this powerful prophet. He's this great ruler, this great judge over Israel. And he has continually shown wisdom and courage and this genuine, deep, and sincere faith in God. Thus far, he's been this impressive man. But here in verse 1, he's a man who's struggling. And we see this 
in the question that the Lord asked him. Look there again at our text. Look at verse one. Look at that question. How, look at the first two words. What are the first two words? How long? How long? How long will you grieve over Saul? How long, Samuel, are going to stay this way? How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Now, like I said a few moments ago, there are a lot of threads coming together in this one scene, and several of them are actually coming together right here in verse 1. So I'm going to take a few moments and just unravel some of those threads so we can understand fully what's going on here. And the first thread is the mention of Saul. Saul. Saul is a man who failed as king over Israel. Uh, The book of 1 Samuel is really the story that starts at the end of the period of the judges. If you read through Judges, it's repeated there was no king in Israel, and that's where the book of 1 Samuel starts. It starts where there was no king of Israel, and the arc of it is to lead to Israel's greatest king, King David. So it goes from no king to Israel's greatest king. But as it takes us there, it's not a smooth ride in getting us there. And one of the reasons is because Israel gets their first king through an act of rebellion, an act of rebellion. I'm going to pick up another thread here and unpack some things. Samuel, this great prophet and priest, he was this judge who had led God's people his entire life. And as you watch him, he leads God's people well for his entire life. He was a godly, good, faithful leader. And as a judge, he was one who was freely and sovereignly chosen by God to lead the people. The judges, there wasn't like a family line or a dynasty. God would sovereignly choose who was going to be a judge over Israel. And under that pattern, God sovereignly choosing who's going to be the next judge, it was actually the Lord, it was Yahweh, who stood as the true king over Israel. But in 1 Samuel, as Samuel approaches the end of his life, and the people don't see an obvious replacement for Saul, they cry out for a change to this system. We're tired of the judges. We want something different. And you read about this in 1 Samuel chapter 8. You don't have to go ahead and turn there, but just let me tell you what happens in 1 Samuel chapter 8. There in 1 Samuel chapter 8, the people come to Samuel, and they say this, Behold, Samuel, you are old, which is a great way to start a conversation with somebody, right? Hey, you're old. Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. In other words, we look at your sons and we don't see the obvious replacement for you. Now we want you to do something, they say. Appoint for us a king to be over us like all of the other nations. So the people, they looked around and they saw the approach to power and leadership and all the nations around them. And they say, we like that better than what God has been doing. Like that better than this other system. So they bring that request to Samuel, but Samuel, for good reason, was not a fan of that request. So there in 1 Samuel chapter 8, we read that that request displeased Samuel, and Samuel prayed to the Lord, Lord, what are we going to do about this situation? And the Lord said to Samuel, and this is a little surprising, the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people. Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, but then listen to this, for they have not rejected you, Samuel, but they have rejected me from being king over them. The Lord continues, Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. Let them know, Samuel, that this is not going to play out the way they think it's going to play out. This is not going to be a good thing for them. 
this request now of a king. And so Samuel does that very thing. He warns them of the trouble that would be coming to them for their request of a king and this desire to be like all the other nations. Then as you keep reading, there is a king who is chosen. And at first, it looks like things might turn out pretty well with this king. And this first king is a man from the tribe of Benjamin, a man named who? Saul. A man named Saul. The Saul that we're talking about in our text here. And when you first meet Saul, he is this impressive figure. The text tells us that he is wealthy, he is young, and according to 1 Samuel 9, there was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. Imagine that. You're the best looking guy in your entire country. That's what it said about him. And it says from his shoulders upwards, he was taller than all of the people. So here is Saul. He's this impressive specimen. He's a man that looks the part of a king. And for a season, he acted the part of a king. Uh, In chapter 11 of 1 Samuel, Saul has this great victory over the Ammonites. And then in chapter 13, he takes on Israel's arch nemesis, the Philistines. By chapter 14, Saul is leading the people in victory over their enemies on every side. So he seems like he's being successful. But if you know the story, not everything was what it seemed. You see, Saul, instead of being a man after God's own heart, was a man who was instead just resting in his own heart. In other words, his faith was in himself. And that led him to make foolish decisions, rash vows, and often acting out of fear instead of faith. And it all comes to head in chapter 15 of 1 Samuel. I won't walk you through the entire scene, but in chapter 15, Saul directly defies the explicit command of the Lord, and he does so in front of all of the people. So instead of of being a leader that's leading them towards obedience to God, which is what a godly leader should do, he, he models this flippant, arrogant disregard of God's command, this rebellion against the Lord. And that's, that's the breaking point. And God rejects Saul as king. But here's the thing. That rejection of Saul as king, it left Samuel devastated. It left Samuel devastated. In chapter 15, we read that once, once Samuel knew about it, heard about it, he wept all night long. Chapter 15 ends with, with Samuel grieving over this situation. And that's where chapter 16 opens. He's still there in his grief. But here's another thread that we need to pick up. Why? Why was he so devastated by this? I mean, he had warned the people, if you have a king, it's just not going to turn out very well. So, So why isn't he having a big I told you so party when everything goes south? Why does he seem so devastating, so distraught to be proven right? Well, commentator Dale Ralph Davis offers some insight here. I thought this was really good. He explains that Samuel was most likely mourning for Saul because he feared that Israel would disintegrate with Saul's sin and rejection. Without leaderships, God's people might self-destruct. Would Israel's enemies ravage her? Would civil strife and civil war break out within Israel? What would happen now that Saul, the king, had been rejected? I mean, the future, because of this rejection of Saul, the future felt completely uncertain. And that would have been an extremely difficult pill for Samuel to swallow. See, think about this. From the time he was a child, from the time he was a child, 
Samuel's entire life had been devoted to the good of God's people. So, so their growth, their prosperity, the, the blessing of the nation as they walked in obedience to the Lord, that was the air that Samuel had breathed his entire life. Their good was his joy. But now it felt like all of that was in jeopardy. I think what we're seeing here, Samuel, this, this devoted leader, grieving and deeply frustrated by the way things had all played out. And this frustration has him paralyzed in his grief. Again, you look at the text. The Lord comes to him. He tries to rouse him out of it. He tells him, fill your horn. Let's go. We've got this new king to make. But in that moment, Samuel is really struggling to get moving. I want to pause here and just ask what I think is kind of an obvious question, but let me just ask. Have you ever been there? Ever been there? Have you found yourself in that place where you are discouraged, you're frustrated, you're struggling, and you're struggling to move forward and trust God because you look back and the track record doesn't seem that great. You look back and you feel like you can find a lot of moments that played out just like your pessimistic heart predicted they would. And here's the thing. Those moments add up, right? And they can get us to that place where we are feeling weary and hesitant, trapped, trapped in our grief. And I think that's where we find Samuel, this great man of God, as this scene opens. He's a man of faith who at that moment is paralyzed by grief and frustration. He's a man of God who's struggling to trust God because of the frustrations of life. But as the scene unfolds, we also see him struggling here because of his fear. And that's the second point for this afternoon. Sometimes God is hard to trust because we're afraid. Sometimes God is hard to trust because we are afraid. Sometimes what God calls us to do is frightening. Amen? <laughs> Sometimes it's scary. And this, this is true for Samuel in this scene. Look here at verse 2. Look at Samuel's answer to the Lord's, let's go and anoint a new king. Look at his answer. And his answer is, look at his, his answer. How, how can I? How can I go? If Saul hears it, what's he going to do? He will, what does the text say? Yeah, he's going to kill me. And I told you there are a lot of threads coming together in this text. Let me just unravel one more for you. And that is that there had been a serious falling out between Samuel and Saul. Back there in chapter 15, Samuel had gone and confronted Saul about his disobedience against the Lord. And he told him, this is what it says there in Samuel, 1 Samuel 15, he told him point blank, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, because you disobeyed him, the Lord has rejected you from being king. And then things got really dramatic. In that moment, Saul starts pleading and he starts begging Samuel, you know, Samuel, change your mind. Talk to the Lord, have him change his mind. And so Saul grabs a hold of Samuel's cloak and Samuel's turning to go and Saul grabs a hold of his robe and he actually tears it. And in that moment, Samuel turns and says to Saul, just like he tore this robe, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and given it to your neighbor of yours who is better than you. Imagine that. Imagine saying that to someone. Okay, the Lord's, you just ripped my clothes. The Lord's ripping this away from you and he's going to give it to someone else. Your neighbor who is better than you. Better than you. 
Imagine saying that to someone. Now imagine saying that to someone who has an army, who has real power, and who stands as the king over your nation in that moment. That's what Samuel did. He, he was the one that God had used to anoint Saul as king over Israel. Now he was the one that God was using to depose Saul as king over Israel. But in that moment, Samuel's afraid of what all this might cost him. And here he's afraid of what Saul will do if he finds that Samuel's gone to someplace else to anoint somebody different to stand as the king over Israel. Here he, feels, he fears for his life. And, and what I want you to understand is that was a very reasonable fear. That was a very reasonable fear. Samuel's actions, going and anointing somebody else as king, in the eyes of many in his culture, would have been viewed as an act of treason. And in the ancient world, treason got you killed. Treason got you killed. So so Samuel's fear here, it's very reasonable. But as I say that, it's also a little surprising. His fear is a little surprising. I say that because thus far in the book of 1 Samuel, if you're reading through the book of 1 Samuel, Samuel has seemed absolutely fearless. I mean, he walks into every scene like he's owning every scene. He comes into the scene and people fear him. He doesn't fear them. And we see that here in our, our text for this afternoon. The elders of Bethlehem, when they find out that Samuel's coming, what do they do? They come out trembling to greet him. So as you read through 1 Samuel, that's what you've become accustomed to seeing. People fear Samuel. Samuel seems fearless. But here watching him hesitate because he's afraid, that seems a little surprising. And I think the author of 1 Samuel wants us to feel that, wants us to feel a little surprised. I think what he's doing, he's actually highlighting Samuel's fear in order to build a contrast with another character in this book, a character who is continually in 1 Samuel, marked by his fear. And that other character, somebody we already talked about, the other character is Saul. Saul, this guy who is physically impressive, towers over everybody else, this physically impressive king, is a man who is continually controlled by his fear. I mean, I could walk you through a number of examples this afternoon, but, but I won't. But the, the climax of his fear is actually there in chapter 15 in his disobedience. Saul himself, he explains his rebellion this way. I didn't obey the command of the Lord, he says, because I feared the people. I feared the people and I obeyed their voice. So that's, that's Saul's fatal flaw, this fear of man. But now here we find Samuel face to face with his fear of man. And, and, and as readers, I think the author wants us to feel a little bit of tension in this moment. How's Samuel going to respond? There's this fear in Samuel. How's he going to respond? Is he too going to defy the command of the Lord? Is he too going to refuse to obey? What will Samuel do? Well, thankfully, Samuel is different than Saul. He does not have that fatal flaw. And we see here in verse 4, Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. And what I think is interesting is he uses almost the same language as chapter 15 where, where Saul disobeyed the command of the Lord, but Samuel did what the Lord commanded and goes to Bethlehem. So Saul turned away, but Samuel turns faithfully into obedience. But here's what I want you to know. That doesn't mean it was easy. Disobedience isn't easy. I mean, from a human perspective, he is risking his life. So it wasn't easy for him to obey. Because of his fear, it wasn't easy. And if you look at the text here, the Lord even throws in some concessions for Samuel. 
and his fear. He tells him, verse 2, take a heifer and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. In other words, go ahead and just tell the people you're there just fulfilling your priestly duty. St. Samuel uses that cover, and he uses that cover because even as he walks forward in obedience, his fear is making it difficult. And it can be the same for us. It can be the same for us. Sometimes it is hard to trust God because there are things in our life that feel so overwhelming, that feel so massive, that just feel so ominous. It seems just silly to go up against them. It seems just ridiculous to go forward. Now, maybe for us, we're not staring down death like Samuel. But maybe you're in a situation where it's a relationship thing. It's a, it's a marriage thing. Maybe you're in a spot where and marriage is hard. It's barely hanging on. Or you, you've got some divisions going on in your family. People maybe you haven't talked to in a while. Or maybe it's friendships that are that. Or, or maybe there's a job situation where you need to have a conversation with either a boss or a coworker or an employee. And honestly, if you just gave in to what you felt, you'd want to run, a, run away and hide from that situation instead of lean in and move forward obeying the Lord. So sometimes it's really hard to trust God and move forward because of our fear. And that's what Samuel, this great man of God, was wrestling with in this scene. But that's not all he was wrestling with. You see, sometimes it's not just the frustrations of our life or our fears that make God hard to trust. Sometimes what makes God so hard to trust is just God. Sometimes what makes God so hard to trust is just God. And what I mean by that is it's the way that he does things. Sometimes God is hard to trust because if I can say it this way, sometimes his ways are so unorthodox. That's my third point. Sometimes God is hard to trust because his ways are so unorthodox. And what I mean by that, I'm playing, having a little fun playing with the words there. But what I mean by that is in light of the way that we would like to do things, the way we would like to line things up in our life, the way we would like things to play forward, in light of the way we would like to do things, God's ways often seem strange. Amen? They seem perplexing. Sometimes the moment they do, I don't know what you're doing, Lord. This doesn't make sense. Sometimes God is hard to trust because his ways are so unorthodox. They're so unlike the way we would approach things. And this is powerfully on display in our text. Let me walk you through this. Verse 4 of our text, Samuel arrives in Bethlehem, and he begins pursuing this mission of anointing Israel's next king. And he starts here by telling all the people to consecrate themselves, to make themselves ritually clean according to the law of Moses, and then come and make a sacrifice to the Lord. Now, in the process of that, Samuel himself goes and consecrates the family of Jesse. And he does this because back in verse 1, Samuel had been told by the Lord that one of Jesse's sons was going to be the one who was going to be the next king over Israel. But here's the thing. In that moment, as Samuel is going to do this, guess what he doesn't know? He doesn't know which one of those sons is the one that the Lord has chosen. And so by verse 6 in our text, there are seven sons of Jesse, all gathered together. Now, let me just help you picture the scene here. Most likely, Samuel and the elders of Bethlehem, along with Jesse's family and some of the people of the town, they'd probably gone up to one of the high places around Bethlehem, and they'd offer sacrifices to Yahweh. And then following that sacrifice, there would be a feast. There would be this communal meal. And because of the, some of the details here and the way the scene plays out, by verse 6, it seems like that 
the sacrifices have already been offered, and they're getting ready to start that communal meal. And in that moment, between those two events, Samuel, this kingmaker over Israel, moves forward to do that very thing. He's going to anoint the next king of Israel. But again, here's the thing. He's still very much in the dark about who he's supposed to anoint. All God has told him this far is, I provided for myself a king from among the sons of Jesse. But he has no idea in that moment which one. So I want you to just take, just take a moment. Let's, let's try to imagine what that must have been like for Samuel in that moment. Just imagine what it must have been like to be in his shoes. There you are. Your heart, you know, it's filled with some frustration. You're worried about your country, the way things have played out, what's going to the future is going to look like. And you're battling some fears because what you're doing in that moment could get you killed. But there you are in that moment and you're stepping out in faith. You're obeying the Lord. You're trusting the Lord. However, in that moment, as you're stepping out in faith, you're also standing neck deep in your own ignorance, right? I mean, because you have no clue. You're standing in that moment and you don't know which one of Jesse's sons you're supposed to anoint. So let me just ask you, what would you feel in that moment, standing there if you were Samuel? What would you think? And, and I ask this because here's the thing. This really happened. <laughs> Sometimes we read these Bible stories and we think of them like fairy tales with people who just didn't live real lives. This is a real guy who had the same struggles and emotions and feelings that we do. Here he is standing in this moment, waiting. Waiting on the Lord. And again, the Lord had given him some details, not all of them. Give him big picture, right? So I want you to go and anoint this new king who's going to replace Saul. But he hadn't given Samuel a step-by-step, moment-by-moment, every detail in advance. So Samuel's standing there, waiting on the Lord. And I point that out because that is often the way God's work. God works. Amen? Amen. That is often the way God's work. That, that's the way this walk of faith happens. I know you know this, but we don't get every detail in advance. As much as we would like it if it was that way, we don't get every detail, every step, every transition, every decision in advance. Instead, following the Lord is a moment by moment, step by step, waiting process. And, and again, that's what makes it hard sometimes, right? I mean, for me, I would like the whole plan laid out in advance, all of the details, and then I'd like to say, okay, Lord, can you change this one and this one and this one? Let's, let's have a conversation and fix it, you know? But it's not that way, is it? It's a moment-by-moment moment waiting process. And in that moment, Samuel's standing there waiting on the Lord to make things clear. And in that waiting, up steps Jesse's firstborn son, a guy named Eliab. And Eliab, he looked right. He looked right. He looked the part. Verse 6 tells us, look at the text. As soon as Samuel saw him, he thought to himself, this is the guy. This is the one. Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. And it's really easy to understand why Samuel thought that. I mean, from a human perspective, Eliab was the obvious choice. He was the firstborn son, which in that culture, the firstborn son, that was the heir apparent leader of the family. Verse 7, it tells us that he was tall, that he was good looking. So he's this strong, strapping, obvious leader. From a human perspective, Eliab would be the obvious choice for king. 
But here's the thing. So was Saul when we first saw Saul, right? Saul, even more so, looked the part. And he turned out to be an absolute dumpster fire as a king. I mean, you keep reading and you see you're dealing with the mess of Saul all the way through the rest of 1 Samuel. So there's a little bit of irony here in Samuel being drawn to Saul 2.0 in this scene. Here's the thing. No sooner had he thought, he's the one, the Lord rejects him. The Lord makes very clear, look at the text, verse 7. Do not look at his appearance or in the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. And that begins a parade of rejection. Verse 8, Jesse calls his next son, Abinadab, or rejects him. Next up, the son named Shema. He wasn't the one either. He gets rejected. And after that, notice the text here. The author of 1 Samuel just stops giving us names. Instead, we are simply told, verse 10, and Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and, seven, and Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Rejection, 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 seven times over. So again, imagine being in this moment. This really happened. Imagine being Jesse in that moment. Imagine being one of those sons in that moment. Maybe, maybe you're the middle child, and you're like, hey, number three, number four, number five, maybe it's going to be me. Oh, rejected. Even more so, imagine being Samuel in that moment. How would you be feeling in that moment? I like this one commentator describes that moment. Humor and embarrassment conspired to come as uninvited guests to this feast at Bethlehem. Humor and embarrassment. And that's really what's going on here. Samuel is standing there trying to figure out what in the world the Lord is doing. And it's getting embarrassing. Seven sons. Seven rejections. And so in our text here, verse 11, Samuel asks this strange yet necessary question. Uh, is this everyone? <laughs> is this everyone? Jesse, are all your sons here? And honestly, it seems like such an odd question because why wouldn't they all be there? I mean, here is Samuel, this great leader who has this historic legacy in your country, and he's come to your home, and he's going to lead your family in worship. Why wouldn't all your sons be there? But Samuel's odd question is then given this answer, and this answer points us to the most unlikely candidate for king. Now, maybe if at that moment Jesse had called his daughter, she would have been a more unlikely candidate for king in that culture, but not by much. Look at the text. Jesse tells Samuel, verse 11, there remains yet a youngest, the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. Now, let me take a moment here and explain why this was one of the most unlikely candidates for king. First, Jesse uses this term here in our text, the term which our Bibles translate as the youngest, and it's also a word that means small, or unimportant. So in a sense, Jesse is saying, yeah, there remains yet another one, the smallest one, the unimportant one, the one that we saw, thought so little of that we didn't invite to come to the sacrifice and the feast today. Instead, we kept him out watching the livestock. So the language of the text here presents this one as this small and unimportant figure. And in a way, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, he's the eighth born son. He's the eighth born son. Who ever heard of the eighth born son 
becoming king. I mean, that's just not the way it worked in the ancient world. It was most often it was the firstborn, and maybe on rare occasions, if that didn't work out, you have the secondborn, or maybe we're really stretching the third. But the eighthborn son? Who ever heard of that? However, Samuel responds to this answer to this, this weird and unorthodox unfolding plan of God with these words. Look at the text. Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. In other words, we are not moving forward. We're not starting this feast. We're not starting anything else until this eighth-born son, this smallest son, this youngest son, this unimportant son comes here now. And in that moment, in that moment, what I think we are seeing with Samuel, this this fearful, frustrated, perplexed kingmaker, what we are seeing is him walking in faith and trusting the way of the true kingmaker. And, and the way of the true kingmaker, Yahweh, was actually revealed to Samuel back in verse 7. There, as, as God rejects Eliab, which was Samuel's first choice, God also impacts something really important for Samuel, and for all of us. And and what he unpacked here is why I think it's often so hard to trust the Lord, yet so important for us to trust him. Look look back at verse 7 of our text. And and I know this is a verse that many of us know, maybe you've heard it from Sunday school onward. But really listen to what the Lord says to Samuel. God tells Samuel in response to his, oh, Eliab must be the guy. He tells him, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For look at, the, look at what it says. The Lord sees, not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. The Lord sees, not as man sees. You see, sometimes it's so hard to trust the Lord because his ways are so different. And his ways are so different because he doesn't see things the way that we see things. So then he doesn't do things the way that we would do things. We like like to plot, we like to plan, we like to organize things in a way that makes sense to us. Amen? We want the world to line up with what we think it should look like. This is what we want to see. This is what we want to happen. This is the way we think the world should look. And for Samuel, in that moment, it was anointing Eliab as the next king of Israel. Or backing up a bit, it was probably not having to go to Bethlehem and risk his life in the first place. Or even further, it was Saul actually working out as king. Or further back, it was the people of Israel not acting like a bunch of knuckleheads and rejecting Yahweh as their true king in the first place. Imagine Samuel, as he's in that moment, he would have drawn out those events that played up to that moment. He would have drawn those out so much differently. And for us, it's often the same. We might look at our life and and we want things to play out different than they have. We might want to map things out differently. We we like our marriage or our singleness or our family or our ministry or our job or our friendships to take different turns than they have. Or or we like a different season than we're in right now. Or, Or we want a different future than the one we fear lay before us. But here's the thing. As we want things to turn out the way we want to see them, that's 
what makes it at times so hard to trust the Lord and his ways. But what the Lord reveals to Samuel here is that he is always so worthy of our trust. And he's so worthy because he sees deeper and he sees truer than we do. He sees deeper and truer than we do. What, what the Lord reveals to Samuel here is he looks beyond the appearance of the moment, appearance of the person, and he sees the truth. He is the omniscient one. He is the all-knowing one. He is the sovereign one who truly sees. And that's why his plans, even though they may appear to us at times perplexing and mysterious and at times so unorthodox, they are always, always, always better than ours. They're better than ours because he is the God who sees. And this proves true when the eighth born son arrives. Look at our text, verse 12. We read, when he, Jesse, sent and brought him, this youngest unimportant eighth born son, in. And, and the first thing we get here in the text, look at it, the first thing we get is his description. This, this son is described as ruddy or healthy looking. He had beautiful eyes, was handsome. So he's a good looking guy, this eighth born son. But here's the thing. We've just been told that all of that information, it's inconsequential at best, right? Because the Lord doesn't look at the outward appearance. Instead, here's what is consequential. The Lord, the one who looks beyond what we see, the one who looks at the heart and knows what's truly there, the one who plans and purposes and his ways are perfect, he says, arise, Samuel, anoint him. For this is and here's the thing, as you're reading through 1 Samuel, this is the one who was promised back in chapter 13. This one who was predicted would come, this man after God's own heart. And here he is, verse 13. He, he's standing there right in front of Samuel. So verse 13, Samuel takes his horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. But again, as we walk through the scene, do you notice something we haven't been told yet? You know, something we haven't been told yet. So far, this eighth-born son, he's just been identified by these pronouns, his, he, him, or as the youngest. What the author is doing is he has presented this one, this object of God's unorthodox plan. He has presented him in anonymity and mystery up until this point. However, here in the moment of his anointing, all of that is removed. And we read this, look at the text, and the spirit of the Lord rushed upon who? David. The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And that's really the mic drop of this scene. In this scene in which we watch Samuel, this perplexed kingmaker, follow God's hard-to-trust ways. As we watch him follow God in his frustration and in his fear and in the unfolding of this unorthodox plan, we watch this plan lead all the way to David, Israel's greatest king. And here's the thing. In David, all of those frustrations and fears and that perplexity that Samuel, Samuel wrestled with in this text, they're all going to be overcome. All of those things in David. Yeah, under David, instead of the nation imploding, which is what Samuel was fearing, what's going to happen? The nation's going to thrive under David. And, and after anointing David, I think this is so interesting, Samuel doesn't run for his life, afraid of Saul anymore. Okay, now I've anointed David. Now I'm afraid I got to get away. What does he do? The text says he goes back to Ramah. What's Ramah? That's his hometown. That's where he lives. If Saul has a problem with me, he knows where to find me. Because he's just anointed the Lord's, he's just anointed David 
and watch him be filled with the Spirit. And so he is not afraid. But most importantly, in David, God is going to make a covenant to establish a future king. A king like David, but so much more than David. And here's the thing, what Samuel couldn't see in that moment, but God sees, is that one day, through David's line, in the most in the unfolding of the most unorthodox plan, a king is going to come, but he's not just going to be a king. He's going to be the king of kings. It's going to come through David's line. And that one that's going to come, he's not just going to lead God's people. What is he going to do? He's going to live for God's people. He's going to die for God's people. And he's going to rise again to give them all, you and me included, eternal life. True, real, eternal life. Through the line of David will come Jesus, the Savior of the world. So yes, sometimes God is hard to trust. God is hard to trust. Sometimes in light of life's frustrations and fears and God's unorthodox ways of working, trusting him can feel really challenging. But here's the thing, what the Bible shows us in scene like this, repeated over and over again, and what the Bible shouts at us, what the gospel shouts at us, is that although sometimes God is hard to trust, he always, always, always proves himself worthy of our trust. Samuel, in that moment, he had no idea where all this was going. No idea. This was leading to the Savior of the world. He couldn't see it, but God saw it. God knew. He planned and purposed it, and his plan, this glorious gospel story, proved God beyond worthy of Samuel's trust. And here's the thing, as we walk with him, just like Samuel walked in with him in our frustrations, in our fears, and the un- following the unfolding of God's unorthodox plan, as we walk with the Lord, he too will prove himself beyond worthy of our trust. Yes, sometimes God is hard to trust, but he always proves himself worthy of our trust. That's my full confession this evening. Would you pray with me? Lord, we we praise you. I praise you that I can stand in front of these people and make this confession that yes, sometimes you are hard to trust, but you always prove yourself worthy of it. And I can make that confession and know it's true. Uh, The ways you have been so faithful in my life and the ways you continue to prove yourself faithful. We thank you for stories like this, stories where we see real people having real struggles. And, And Samuel's not the hero of this story. You are. And so we see in the midst of those real struggles, we see your faithfulness, your working. And we have these things to encourage and strengthen our own faith. And I just love the way that all of these things continue to point us to the big story of Scripture, this gospel story in which Jesus Christ is the center. And you have proven yourself so worthy of trust in giving us Jesus as our Savior. So I pray for all of these who are here tonight. I don't know where they're at with what they're struggling with, those moments where they're, they're feeling like it's hard to move forward because of frustrations that are going on in their life or it's hard to move forward because of fear or they're just struggling to understand what you're doing right now in their life. And I pray that through the story, you just remind them, you are the faithful one. You are the God who sees And they can rest in that, that you see truer, 
clearer than we do. And that's that they can rest in you. You have them. I pray that by your spirit you would encourage them in that tonight. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.